0: Well, this morning we are wrapping up chapter four in the gospel of John. So if you have a Bible, you can open up there with me. And I hope that you do have a Bible in front of you because there's a few things that I think you're going to want to circle and highlight and maybe underline and, and be able to flip back and forth as we go through the text this morning. These verses that we are going to look at to to close out chapter 4 wrap up a pretty significant section in John's gospel that's called uh, the Cana cycle that started way back in the beginning of chapter 2. Now, Remember, when, when our Bibles were originally written, when John originally wrote his gospel, there were no chapter breaks, no verse breaks, and so linguistically, the authors used things to sort of separate sections and comments and, and divide uh, the narrative into, into pieces, as it were, and so that's what we're finding here. We found in the beginning of chapter 2, John talking about Jesus being in Cana, and remember he did the, the miracle there of turning water into wine. And so John is, is really deliberate of even calling that the first sign in John two eleven, And then here at the end of our passage this morning in verse 54, John reminds us that Jesus is back in Canaan and says, this is the second sign. So we really have this parcel of chapters 2, 3, and 4 together, all that, that John is, is purposefully tying together. Now, in between the beginning and end of this section, John does allude to other signs and things that Jesus did. So it's not like John's trying to number force every single itemized miracle and sign that Jesus did. But as we look at this section, as he ties it back up with Jesus again coming to Cana, John is starting to teach us some really important things about what Jesus is doing and and about the miracles Jesus is doing. And so in this passage, John's going to help us uh, see and understand and answer the question, what is authentic faith? So let's start in. Verse 43. After two days, he, that's Jesus with his disciples, departed for Galilee. We got to take a little break here as we remember where we've come from because, again, we're, we're taking this chunk by chunk. And so John is here pointing us back to the trip that Jesus started in uh, chapter 4, verse 3. When we read that Jesus left Galilee and departed, or left Judea, excuse me, and departed again for Galilee. And so we've spent the last three weeks looking at this sort of uh, rabbit trail or this side trail. Jesus was on his way somewhere, but then he got stopped, uh, and we've looked at that section for the last three weeks. We saw the interaction there, this diversion that he took through Samaria where he met the Samaritan woman at the well and, and, and she met with Jesus and through their, their conversation, which is really important, just conversation, there's no evidence that he did any miracles or signs for her. She was moved towards being convinced that he was the Messiah, the one that they had been waiting for for so long. And so she ran back into town. Remember, this was a woman who was purposefully and deliberately alone. But she went back to the people and said, Listen, I think I've I found someone. I found this man, Jesus, who, as she said, told me everything I ever did. And then the town came out to meet Jesus, spent time with him, and invited Jesus and his disciples to spend uh, two days with them, to stay with them, which was completely unheard of for a Samaritan village to ask a Jewish rabbi and his disciples to stay with them. And that's kind of where we're picking up. They had believed in what Jesus had said and, and, was, and he has stayed with them. So verse 44 continues and says, John gives us a bit of an, an editorial note here that says, Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, uh, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. We want to take a... a a minute here and stop for a second here, and, and I think we need to address something. Uh, one of the common or oft criticisms of Christianity and Christians, whether, whether it comes from someone who, who's an atheist or agnostic or just skeptical or whatever, one of the things they often level at Christians is that the Bible is just full of contradictions, so how can you possibly believe it? And within our verses this morning, we're actually going to look at a couple of places where there are these so-called contradictions. And so what I want us to do is we're going to, you know, unpack the text and see how uh, Jesus is drawing us to faith and how how God wants us to have an authentic faith. But as a bit of a side note, we're going to stop twice and look at these contradictions, supposed contradictions, and take a minute to see and build confidence in in the text that, that the text isn't actually contradicting itself. And so let me ask you, and you can drop notes in the comment sections if you like, as you read verses 43, 44, and 45, do you see any contradictions? Take a look. You've got your Bible in front of you. Have a, have a quick read of them. And again, drop a note in there and, and let me know what you see, and I will obviously not look at them in real time because I'm standing here, but I'll go have a look in a minute. So here, here's, here's one I'll start pointing out for you. Where was Jesus born? We've just come out of Advent. You probably know Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem was in Judea. So why does John here say a prophet has no honor in his hometown if Jesus is just leaving Judea and going to Galilee? Either John's mixed up his geography or something's going on here or something doesn't seem right. The first thing I think we need to do when we consider this supposed contradiction in the text is, is let's give the author a little bit of grace here and assume that as he's writing, he's not going to contradict himself from one verse to the next sentence right next to it. Jesus is going to Galilee. By the way, he won't be accepted in his hometown. Okay, so let's, let's give him a little bit of grace. But the second thing here, even though Jesus was born in Bethlehem, where did he grow up? Not Bethlehem, right? What, what was he called? Who was he called? Jesus of Nazareth. If we flip back to the beginning of the book in, in John 1, verse 45, we see uh, Nathanael even say of Jesus, can any good thing come from Nazareth? And Nazareth is in Galilee. Now, we can can take this one step further. And because it is an important theme throughout John's gospel, uh, the word hometown from that that little proverb in verse 44 there, uh, hometown is a bit of a clunky translation. In fact, if you're, you're looking at the New International Version, the NIV, you don't see the word hometown. You see prophet has no honor in his own country or his own Uh, his own uh, nation, his homeland. And John has already started to point us to this, hasn't he? That that Jesus was not accepted by his own people. Again, flip back to John chapter 1, and and right in the prologue, in verse 9, John writes this, The true light, he's pointing to Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. In verse 11, here's the key. He came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. Okay, so he's not accepted by his own people, his own homeland. So I hope we can start to see this isn't actually a contradiction if we actually look at what's being written here. Now remember, as we've just recapped, Jesus has just come from spending a couple of days with a group of Samaritans. And remember, Samaritans and Jews did not relate to one another. They didn't even talk to one another. John has told us this. And he spent time with them. They, they heard Jesus and proclaimed that he was the savior of the world. And now he comes to his own people, to the Jews in Galilee, and the reception is different. Sure, we, we read that they welcomed him, but, but look close at that verse 45 and see why they welcomed him. It says the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen all the signs, all the things he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. And We read about this back in chapter 2 as well. Chapter 2, verse 23, and following, It's John writes for us, now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing it. He continues, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him because he knew what was in the hearts of the people. See, the Galileans welcomed Jesus, yes, but they welcomed him because they wanted to see what he might do now that he was here again. They'd been to Jerusalem. They'd probably seen him or heard about him cleansing the temple. He was coming back to Cana. They'd heard about the water to wine. Many of them maybe had been there for the water to wine, and they wanted to see more signs. And we're going to keep seeing this in future chapters as well. Here's what John is talking about. When he is pointing us towards authentic faith, he's saying, listen, authentic faith, a a real relationship with Jesus, it isn't just spiritual curiosity, but it's an actual commitment. This still happens today uh, all the time. People move towards a, a church or a gathering or something spiritual sounding, and there's a curiosity surrounding Jesus how many books and articles and blog posts are written every single year about this jesus person it seems like every year at least once jesus is on the cover of some time magazine publication right our culture the west may be anti religion but there's something about jesus there's a there's a curiosity around jesus which is a good starting place but we're not to remain in that curiosity Often, though, that gets shuffled in our curiosity and just wondering about this Jesus. He just sort of gets shuffled in with words like, well, I'm just trying to be enlightened. You know, I'm maybe spiritual but not religious. Or or I have faith but don't ask me to define faith because it's just some sort of thing. See, the problem is when when you settle into just curiosity and don't actually do anything more than that, you're just sort of coming to Jesus to see the latest parlor trick. So let's keep reading and see how this plays out. Verse 46. So Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water and wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Now Capernaum was somewhere between 18 and 22 miles away, depending on the route you took. So when this man, this official, or another translation says a royal official heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him to ask him to come down to heal his son, for the son was at at the point of death. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Now, once again, we, we step into another uh, alleged contradiction text. There's some things here that sound pretty familiar to Jesus uh, healing a centurion's son. We read about that in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Matthew 8 specifically talks about this. And so some have said, well, John obviously just stole this from, from Mark or from Matthew. He was probably reading Matthew and just tried to piece it together, but boy, did he mess up the details. But there are a lot of uh, really technical reasons why that's not true, why this isn't the same story. But let me just point out a couple uh, of the simpler things, the the really sort of easy things that if we we read the two texts together, we see that they are not the same thing. In Matthew chapter 8, when we read about the centurion coming to Jesus, we're told that he is in fact a centurion. That means he's a Roman, he's a Gentile. In this text, there's no indication that this official or this, this royal official is a Gentile. He is most likely a Jew. He's probably a part of, somehow connected to Herod's ruling family. So it's, it's, it's pretty clearly two different people. Uh, in Matthew chapter 8, we're told that the person needing healing is a servant, the centurion's servant, Right? But here, this man comes and he's talking about a son. And with the the emphasis he puts in and and, and how hard he works to come that distance to see Jesus, it may even be his firstborn son. Again, that's, that's a big difference. That's not something you can just accidentally mess up when you're writing the story. And finally, compare Jesus' reaction to the two men and their asks. When the centurion comes to Jesus and they have their conversation, Jesus hears about him and, and, and in Matthew 8 we read that Jesus heard his response and marveled and said to anyone, all those who followed him, those who listened, truly I tell you there is no one in Israel that I found this much faith in. Or that has, has this much faith. He, he commends a centurion in his faith. But again, look at verse 48. Here he says, unless you see signs and wonders you won't believe. This, this is a bit of a rebuke. And so our best conclusion here is actually the obvious one, that these are two separate occasions. Jesus did this miracle at least twice. And this shouldn't surprise us. This shouldn't be a problem for us. Remember, as John concludes his gospel, and we we started with this, when we started our series back in September, in John 20, John says, listen, Jesus did way more than we took the time to write down here. Way more signs, way more wonders. He said way more things. He taught way more things. But what we've compiled here is enough for you to believe. So it's not a problem that Jesus did this more than once. Let's uh, get back to the scene at hand. Again, Jesus has left the Samaritans where they were demonstrating an, an authentic faith. They, they believed in Jesus. They weren't sign-chasing. There's, there's no evidence other than Jesus speaking into their hearts and about their hearts that Jesus did any miracles or signs for them. But they, they spent time with him and recognized that he was different, and everything changed Again, 429, the woman who has spent time with Jesus, she runs back to town and says, come and see a man who, who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Verse 39, we read that the many Samaritans from town believed in the woman's testimony that he told me all I ever did. There's no sign, there's no miracle there. He's just speaking at her heart. And verse 41, many more believed because of Jesus' word. And verse 42, they come and they say, Listen, we, we started to believe because this woman told us about you, but now, Jesus, we've come and we've spent time with you and we have heard for ourselves. They're word people. They believed in Jesus, they weren't putting their faith in, in a show, in miracles, in signs. He comes to Galilee to his own people and the people are kind of waiting with bated breath to be entertained and amazed because they saw the signs he had done before. And this royal official comes from Capernaum, again, it's 18, 22 miles away, because he's heard this miracle worker is gonna be there. And he comes and asks, actually kind of commands him to come down and heal his son. But Jesus, who, who knows the hearts of people, remember we just read that again from chapter 2, 35, He says to this man and responds to the crowd in verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. The the you here is plural. He's talking to everyone within earshot. What are you coming for? You're not coming for me. You're just coming for a miracle, for a sign. Undeterred at this, this sort of rebuke, the official tries to pull rank on Jesus, which is really interesting. Verse 49, the official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Our our English translation here kind of betrays how these words sound. The man is used to no doubt ordering people around. He's a man of status. He's a royal official. He's got position. He would have power with him. He's used to telling people what he wants, and they jump to do it. And so his word, come down, isn't an ask. It's a command. Listen, miracle worker, I'm glad you're back here, but you need to come with me. I've heard you can do some pretty cool tricks. The stories have reached us. We, we, I've got a lot going on here. I've got status. I've got prestige. And so you should come with me because I need your help. I need you to heal my son. So let me ask you, is this how you treat Jesus? Now, I, I don't think any of us would likely put it quite that bluntly but I do suspect that, that many of us do treat Jesus that way, maybe even pretty regularly. See, when life is good, when things seem to go our way, when, when everything's coming up me and, and, you know, job's good, kids are good, family, whatever's good, it's all good, no problem. But when things start to go a little sideways, it's time for us to cash in those chips, so to speak. It's time for Jesus to come through for us. Jesus, listen, I've, I've got better than, better than average church attendance. I'm there at least twice a month. Help me out here. Hey, Jesus, get me out of this jam. I'm kind of at the end of myself, so let me just sort of rub the lamp and poof, you come out and get me out of this jam and I'll, I'll write you a really big check for whatever you need that for. Hey, Jesus, fill in the blank for whatever it might look like. See, the danger of signs and wonders that Jesus is calling out here. The danger of emotional responses, purely emotional responses, is that it's really easy to get caught up in them. It's really easy to get caught up and stuck in them. And then it can be really easy to build your faith on a moment or an emotional experience or a sign or a wonder but then what happens when that next sign or wonder doesn't come? What happens when that next emotional experience isn't the same? What happens when Jesus seems silent or distant, or that healing doesn't come, or that relationship doesn't get restored, or that job falls through, or that, that's, that course you don't do as well as you hope, or whatever it might be? Jesus never intended the signs and miracles to be what people base their lives around. He absolutely used them to to demonstrate who he was, that he was in fact the Son of God, that he has all authority over the physical universe because he made it. But the miracles, they weren't ends in and of themselves. They were meant to, to point us past the miracle, past the sign, past that emotional connection and bring us to the point of, of praise and worship to the one behind it all. I've been uh, here at Trinity for three and a half years or so and we have, we have prayed for healings that didn't come. We've, we've prayed for relationships to be fixed that weren't fixed. We've prayed for, for lots of things that, that, that maybe didn't turn out the way we expected at the time. So if, if our faith is, is rooted in expecting Jesus to come through the way we want him to, that can be devastating. See, the Jews were, were building their faith here on the show, on the miracle, on the signs, on, on all these things Jesus was kind of showing them. But we saw the Samaritans had built their faith on Jesus' words, not on his works. So look at what Jesus does in verse 50. He says to the man, go, your son will live. He kind of steps into the middle here. He, he responds in kind to the man with a command, go. That's as, as similarly harsh as a come down that he was just told to do. But then he steps, as I said, he steps in between the request and the healing and really says, listen, I'm not a genie in a lamp. I don't cater to your will. Yes, I love you. Yes, I know you. Yes, my heart breaks for your heart breaking for your son right now, but let's get things ordered correctly here. I wonder how that went over. I, I imagine this scene Jesus and this official standing kind of nose-to-nose, face-to-face, the crowd gathered around them. And I wonder what's going on in the official's heart and and what's what's sort of wrestling around in there. And we're going to get a glimpse of it in just a minute. And I just picture these two men, both uh, firm in their own will and authority, knowing who they are and and maybe the royal official, not quite as firm as Jesus, probably not anyways, but looking at each other and saying, okay, what's going to happen here? Bit of a stalemate. See, in those days, there were lots of reports of, of miracles going on, but they were, they were tied to the location of the healer, which is why this official comes to Jesus and says, Come with me. You need to come down. But Jesus goes off script, doesn't he? And he says, Listen, if if you really believe, it's going to be more than that. You go. Again, there, there was a significant journey. It's not like this man just had to walk back across town to his, his ill-dying son. He had a, you know a 20-mile walk, a 20-mile journey. And so if he was going to take that, he was going to have to have more faith in this healer than he had when he stepped up to confront him. He would have to have more faith that what Jesus said would come true because they were not going to be traveling together. As we read all four Gospels, we see that that miracles were a natural part of Jesus' ministry. They happened regularly, and they do lead people to faith in him. But Jesus always presents himself as more than just a miracle worker, and he expects more than just an emotional assent from us to who he is. He expects to be more than just a a tool in our own arsenals to fix a problem we can't seem to fix or sort out on our own. He's looking for, for men and women to not only believe in his ability to work the miracle, but to believe in him, to believe in his word, to believe in all that he says. Then look what happens. And again, the language is so important here. The second part of verse 50 and so the man believed what? Not the sign, not the miracle. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. We don't, we don't want to miss this. We can't miss this. There is growth here. Something is changing here. He's, he's different now than he was two verses ago. The man that's walking away from Jesus is different than the man that walked up to Jesus, kind of puffing himself up, thinking, Jesus will have to listen to me. I'm pretty important. The man's starting to find himself and his faith drifting towards more what the Samaritans had than what the Jews in Galilee were expressing, because he believed the word that Jesus spoke, and then he went. His faith had moved away from simply hoping for a sign, a miracle, a wonder, and it had started to rest on something more, on the word, what Jesus said. Remember what what brought the authentic faith that the Samaritans were an example of? That many more believed because of what Jesus said. And this is the goal of John's gospel for us. It's not to, to point out signs and, and wonders and draw us into the the magic show that Jesus could concoct. But John writes so that everyone who picks up his gospel from when he first wrote it to now, to generations into the future, however long we have until Jesus comes back, he wants every one of us to read this gospel and see that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. And with that information, we need to make a choice. We can either choose to look at Jesus as just some other teacher, some other miracle worker, some other person of history, or we can trust in Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God, and receive the eternal life, abundant life, the flourishing life, even today in this moment that he promises to us. The thing is, we can't trust Jesus unless we know the truth about him, because we need to to root that trust in something and here's here's the beautiful piece we're only four chapters into 21 of john's gospel and and john has repeatedly shown jesus to be the christ for us to be the son of god for us not just through the signs and wonders but through the titles that is that have been ascribed to jesus Again, we're only a little ways in. We've already seen eight, at least eight different titles for Jesus that help us to know who it is that we're trusting, who John is calling us to put our, our faith, our hope, our trust, our trust, our security, and our future in. Right out of the gate, in verse one of chapter one, Jesus was announced as the Word of God, the one who could perfectly reveal God to man. In chapter 1, verse 29 and 36, Jesus is declared to be the Lamb of God, the one who would offer his life as the perfect once-for-all sacrifice for the sin, for the rebellion, for the going away, the offense of every man and woman. Chapter 1, verse 34, Jesus called the Son of God, the one, the unique Son who was sent by the Father as the greatest Valentine's Day gift ever, the gift of love for his people. In chapter 138 and verse, chapter 3, verse 2, Jesus is called rabbi, teacher, the one who could perfectly teach us what God is like and and how we can be reconciled to him. In chapter 141, Jesus is called the Messiah, the one who would completely fulfill all the promises of the Old Testament that God had given. Chapter 149, Jesus is welcomed as the king of Israel, the one who would sit on the throne and, and rule over his kingdom. Two verses later, in chapter 152, Jesus is called the Son of Man, the one that David or Daniel excuse me, had prophesied would have an everlasting kingdom, one that would never pass away, and would be filled with, with every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping him and serving him. And then in chapter 4, verse 42, Jesus is proclaimed to be the Savior of the world, the one who would shed his blood and bring salvation to all mankind. So what are we rooting our faith in? It's this truth about Jesus. Not just in signs or wonders, not just in miracles, not just in a moment, not just in an emotional uh, time of life, day of life, uh, event that we experienced. Even though he's capable of all of those things, that's a part of it, but they all point us to him. In these last verses, we see the really important truth that authentic faith isn't just a single decision, but it's a growing dependence. We saw this to be true in the Samaritans, how they moved from one person to the whole village. Said, okay, I, I, I hear what you say. This sounds pretty important. Let's go out and see. And then they believed in his word. And now we're seeing it in the royal official. Remember, he believed Jesus' word and he left. 51 chapter 4, verse 51, as he was going down, this is the royal official heading back home on his journey, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering, and so he asked them the hour when he began, began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him, and the father knew that this was the hour that Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed, and all his household Twice in these few verses we're told the man believed, verse 50 and verse 53. We see the same pattern as the Samaritans as well. See, John's showing us through these verses, through this chapter, that authentic faith results in continued belief, continued and growing belief. See how that worked out here? In verse verse 48, the royal official came to Jesus looking at him as some sort of a healer or miracle worker. Then in an instant, two verses later, in verse 50, something was different. This healer doesn't like other healers. He doesn't have to come with me. People are saying he might be the Christ. I've got to make a decision here, and so I'm going to believe in his word when he says, go, and my son will be okay. Verse 53, we, we read that, that the, the, the word that he put his trust in has come true, and so maybe everything else about this person is true. And so he realizes this is someone that I owe everything to. I think I've got authority. I think I've got it together. I'm pretty self-made. I've done everything for myself, but this this is way more than anything I've ever done. So I'm going to tell everyone around me. I'm going to convince my whole household, everyone that lives with me, my family, anyone that works with me, anyone that's serving me in the household, that that we all need to believe in this word and it will convince them. It changed everything. For those who are watching or tuned in that, that, that are followers of Jesus, if I asked you the question, how do you know you're a Christian? How do you know you're a follower of Jesus? What, w- what would you say? Again, I'd love to have you drop that in the comments and have a look at it in a minute. I bet for, for some or many of us it might start with, well, I, I prayed a prayer and gave Jesus my life when I was whatever, put it in an event, put it in a place, put it a, a an age, whatever, plunk it in there. And that, that's a piece of it for sure. But let me suggest that if, if the only reason you can define yourself as a Christian is, is that moment some time ago, that something's missing. See, authentic faith isn't based on a single event that took place one time and then we've, we've moved on from it. But authentic faith always continues. It always grows, it matures, and it develops. As we continue through John's gospel, we're going to see many who seemingly at one time would call themselves believers and followers of Jesus turn away from him. We're going to see it big time in chapter 6. And at that moment in chapter 6 when when Jesus turns to his disciples we we read that many disciples deserted him but when he turns to those who had an active, growing authentic faith, one that was being worked on and worked out, it was not perfect yet by any stretch of the imagination but it was being tested and tried and still proving small when he looked at them and said, are you going to leave me as well? Do you remember what Peter answered? Where are we going to go? Lord, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He says, and, and we have believed and we have, have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is, concept of of authentic and growing faith continues throughout the New Testament. It continues and it grows when we persevere. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, he says, "And, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and which I, Paul, became a minister. Later in our New Testaments, in Hebrews chapter 3, the the, the author of Hebrews writes, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you any evil, any unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort and encourage one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For if we have come to share in Christ, uh, we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As we keep walking through the Gospel of John, we're going to see Jesus continue to talk about this this continuing growth, about abiding, about remaining, about persevering in him. Authentic disciples continue in faith. They keep growing in their dependence in him. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that it is a perfect, always up and to the left, linear growth. There's going to be times and seasons of wrestling and doubt and questioning, but Jesus will hold strong. And in those times, that will come of wrestling and questions and doubt. We will cling to the word, to the truth that we know about Jesus, not just the sign and the miracle and the emotional experience we had one time at campfire, at summer camp, or, or whatever it might be. And we will continue to ask for Jesus to give us wisdom and knowledge and understanding of who he is and what he's done and how he has promised to always be with us and always be true. See, authentic faith is is more than a spiritual curiosity about Jesus. Authentic faith is more than just emotional feelings for Jesus. Authentic faith isn't just a single decision about him but authentic faith is an actual commitment an informed belief and a growing dependence on Jesus so let me leave you with this where are you at is is your faith in Jesus whatever that looks like is it an actual con- commitment informed belief and growing dependence is, is, is your faith like the Samaritans who, who heard the word of Jesus and trusted it? Or is it more like the Galileans who, who knew Jesus had done some signs and some, some wonders in the past and were maybe hoping for another show to come through in the pinch for them? Or maybe you're not yet in the place where you would claim to have any faith. And if that's you, first of all, thank you for not only tuning in but sticking with us this far through. But let me ask you why. What's, what's holding you back from faith? What, what is it that's in the way? What's keeping you from looking at Jesus and, and trusting him? And I'd love to see your thoughts in the comments. You can you can send me a message if you're watching on Facebook. You can send me a message through the through our Facebook page if you're on our church online page. Uh, hit the live prayer button. You can jump into a conversation and, and leave a note. You can email me. You can text me. Whatever it is, I would would love to hear something from you. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this text. Jesus, thank you for. Your grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Thank you that you have come, not just to impress us with a show, not just to to show that that you're pretty powerful and we should follow you because you can do these signs and these wonders, but thank you that you, you use those as a tool to point us towards the truth in your name of who you are. I pray that you would even now and maybe again this morning stir up in our hearts places where we're, where, we're looking at you improperly. When our, when our faith is, is not in, in who you are but in the things that you have done in the past either for us or for others. I pray that you would help us to, to not build our hope and future on Jesus you did this for someone else so you, you have to do it to me. If I, if I speak the right words if I utter the right, the right whatever you, you have to obey. You have to do what I want jesus grow in us authentic faith one that is a commitment in who you say you are and who you've demonstrated you are one that is an informed belief and we we see the claims that you make about yourself and others made about you and we have to do something with that information and i pray that our authentic faith i pray for each one of us a, a faith that is growing and deepening, being tried and tested, and but coming through the trials and the testing to remind us that we need you and that you have done everything we need. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.